on finding and targeting their ideal customers at scale. I'm your host, Monique Ruiz. This month's episode is almost a continuation of the conversation we had last month where we talked about campaign execution, but we're taking a slight step back and starting at the beginning. Today, we're talking audiences, activation, and acquisition, because first of all, who doesn't love alliteration? So what does this mean? Well, it's a little bit of who are your best customers and prospects? What does it take to pique their interest enough to shuffle them down the marketing funnel from awareness to consideration? Then how do you actually acquire or convert them to paying customers, clients, or members? To help me answer these questions and a lot more, I'm excited to welcome Don Carley to the podcast. Don is the president and co-founder of Nima Hunter Incorporated and a consultant to branding and strategy firms on topics related to precision marketing. Don, welcome to the Marketing Insider. Hi, Monique. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank We're you so much. happy to have you. Yeah. So you wear a bunch of different hats and you've yeah. been a great partner to Claritas for many, many years, working closely with our financial services team in particular. Yeah. But this is your first time on our podcast. So I'd love if you can give our listeners a little bit of insight into your areas of expertise and what clients come to you to help them achieve. Well, thank you. Um, well, first of all, it's it's been a pleasure working with Claritas in that in the earlier part of my career, I, I was responsible for strategy and marketing at uh, Xerox mm-hmm. and particularly B2B, um, where we had great technology for personalization. With the advent of digital printing, we were now able to create transaction billing for banks and credit unions that didn't say, dear customer, it said, dear Monique. And right. It also included your current balance and an offer just for you. Um, what we didn't have at the time was the kind and quality of data that's now available through platforms like Claritas, mm-hmm. where not only can I identify audiences in the United States based on a whole array of demographic and psychographic and product usage characteristics, but I can leverage the identity graph to not just identify them, but to engage them and track the metrics associated with conversion. And that is absolutely amazing. Um, I only wish that in the years when I was leading precision marketing uh, for Xerox, I had these tools at my disposal. Yeah. And uh, I will link in the description box uh, some more information on identity graphs for anybody listening that is kind of like, what is that? What's that about? We're covering a lot of ground with our questions today, but let me start off by doing a general marketplace look back with you. Sure. What is different about the customer journey now that we're three years post the beginning of COVID when all industries were experiencing disruption to some degree? Yeah, it's got so many things. Um, But I, I think the most important is that COVID changed the relationship between workers in the workplace, Mm -hmm. for one. So work from home (laughs) or work from wherever (laughs) is seriously now not an option, but in fact, a requirement. Right. We just saw recently New York City had to relent on its pressure that all workers had to be in the office five days a week and said, okay, all right. Three days. <laughs> um, so that's a big change because when we talk about engaging audiences, 
in an era with numerous digital channels of communication, it's important to understand when they're digitally at home <laughs> rather than in a place of work. And right. especially when you're trying to reach them as business people. But every business person is a consumer and has a consumer identity. So the ability now to reach people where they are in their home um, and when they want to be reached, the way they want to be reached, about mm -hmm. topics that are of interest to them, rather than being intrusive and and um, superfluous to yeah. to their real needs, I think is a breakthrough, is a, a, a sea change that we've seen in the past three years. That's one. Um, the second is, of course, you know, digital connectivity has improved dramatically in the past three years. We're now seeing 5G starting to actually reach practical um, degrees of availability and bandwidth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's changed the kinds of media that we can serve at the, re the, the conference for uh, XR and VR. People were marveling at the fact that you're now able to start streaming on 5G mm -hmm. um, virtual reality, augmented reality experiences. And Apple was supposed to drop its new blended reality headsets. Um, which, again, combined with 5G communications, changes. How do we engage the consumer? Where yes. do we engage the consumer? It isn't necessarily um, in, a, in a physical location with a branch if you're a financial services firm. It's now a digital branch, a right. virtual branch. And it, it could just as easily be knowing who is using a particular social media channel or a particular digital channel to um, engage with financial services, as an mm -hmm. example. Hmm. So that, I mean, I think the, the third party cookie um, issue also changed. I mean, we were told just before COVID, or just as COVID was uh, uh, starting to manifest as something more than just a, you know, a flu-like interference to something of a global pandemic, right? there was a great deal of talk and announcements by Apple and Google that they were going to be eliminating third-party cookies. And that, that did put a lot of people in a panic. They relented a bit and not gone away, but it's been put off a bit. Mm -hmm. But I think it did, it, it did change the awareness of marketers, the importance of first-party data, third-party data, and, and identity graphs. Um, and, you know, it's been easier for me as a consultant to talk to clients about the value of an identity graph, mm -hmm. of having, of having um, third-party data with the kind of coverage that we do and with the kind of depth that we do on so many different demographic and psychographic and product usage behaviors and intents. So that's, that's been a real change. Yeah, it's all of those linkages. I know for yeah. me personally, there are a few brands or software or industries that I personally look to a lot more than I did in 2019 before mm -hmm. the pandemic. So, and yeah. I'm not an outlier in that change in behavior. You know, everybody's right. in that same boat. So you have to look at potentially targeting a new audience in mm -hmm. this way. So, so what, as a brand, what considerations do you need to make uh, to yeah. ensure that you are reaching those ones that offer the most opportunity for yeah. you? Well, uh, with I work with a number of financial services brands, and in particular in the credit union space, which is quite mm -hmm. interesting to me because credit unions don't have customers. They have members. Members, yep. And, and their value proposition is quite different from the value proposition of banks. Mm-hmm. 
where you have shareholders that are, you know, not necessarily uh, in the position of having interests that are aligned with the member or consumer, rather. Um, whereas if you're a if you're a member of a credit union, uh, you are an owner, yeah. in effect, and you have a voice that you wouldn't have with a, a more traditional bank. So the first thing I start with is tell me about your members. And it's amazing to me how often they really can't tell me about their mm -hmm. members. They don't realize that there's information beyond when they became a member and what their mm -hmm. current deposits are and whether or not they borrowed or whether or not they've made a deposit in a CD. That if they append cycle segment data from Claritas to their members, they can now gain insights. Granted, these are insights that are often at the level of a census tract, um, not necessarily at the level of an individual. Right. But nonetheless, it allows you to say, well, who are your best customers by your own measure? And then what other things can we know about them through third-party data and segmentation using cycle segments or prism segments from Claritas? Mm -hmm. Having done that, we can say, well... Let's see where people other than your members with those same characteristics live in physical space. And frankly, increasingly, where do they live in digital oh, yeah, terms? Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> the metaverse. <laughs> it, well, you know, it, it, it has changed. Banking has changed. I mean, you ask me one of the things that's changed. Yeah. When I, I first started working with a credit union about four years ago, when everything about their expansion was about new branches, mm -hmm. and then COVID came, and all the branches were closed. Yeah. So how do you expand? People are learned to bank online. They learn to use virtual teller uh, ATMs with visual um, video tellers. Right. Um, if they were going to use anything at all, um, people didn't want to come into the office and handle money. <laughs> so they got com comfortable with, you know, digital check deposits and yeah. and digital transfers. Mm -hmm. Wow. They also began to spend more time online and become more comfortable with it. Um, so, you know, I, it starts with who's your best customer because in all likelihood, your next best customer is someone who either is referred by your current member mm -hmm. or is has high degrees of similarity in terms of their demographics, their psychographics, and their product usage, right? financial services product usage, or even consumer product usage. And rather than, you know, using an older approach of spray and pray advertising yeah, to build yeah. unaided and aided awareness at considerable cost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yes, and unfortunately, there's still a lot of people that do that. But you know, it's it well, kind of goes with do they? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's a place for there's a place for brand advertising. That's true. Yes. To you know, if, if you think of it in terms of the journey, the customer journey, what has changed? Another thing that's changed is in the past, the the customer would often or the prospect would often be interacting with a person in person at some point in the middle of their journey. And by journey, I mean, it begins when they realize they have a problem or a need, mm -hmm. but they don't know if their need is unique or there are others like them. So they begin to do research. Well, and, you know, if you were milling around in public, you might ask a friend at 
a club or whatever, but now we're all online. So people start going to pick the social media channel um, and they ask for advice. I've had this problem. Am I alone? And they find out they're not. Well, how did you solve the problem? Then they start talking about a white paper or a webinar or a Mm -hmm. podcast, or they say, you should check out this company, this brand. And the fact is that 80% of the decision of the d- discussions about the solution never take place in a face-to-face exchange with the companies that are ultimately going to be vying for the decision. Mm-hmm. They're being done digitally. And with people that may not be known other than through a, a LinkedIn group or a, a Facebook group or right. an Instagram feed or, or something along those lines. So in that regard, the journey has changed. It's increasingly digital and it's increasingly um, making the, the conversion step more challenging. If you have not developed any engagement with the prospect mm-hmm. until they've pretty much gotten down to, well, I've narrowed the field. It's really between banks A, bank B, and credit union C. Right. And now it's it's all about interest rates and terms, and we'd like to think we're rational. But, but the fact is that a lot of decision-making in purchasing, whether it's for business or for, for, for consumer personal use, is emotional. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, companies that don't understand that journey and how to engage an audience with a high likelihood of making a decision for whatever product or service it is that they are offering (laughs) are going to be left out of that part of that consumer's brain. They're they're not going to have an emotional connection to the brand. They're not going to have a personal connection to the seller in this case. They're going to look at it very transactionally and, and, Unfortunately, it it becomes a race to the bottom then for mm-hmm. most brands. So, yeah, you and I were talking about this when we were discussing getting together for this podcast. So, I want to bring the listeners mm-hmm. in on the conversation. What's the difference between having market insights and having voice of customer data to help inform mm-hmm. your marketing strategy? Well, it's a phenomenal question, and so I I tend to approach it in in um, looking at market insight as data about a market seen from above. Okay. Seen, you know, think of it as I'm I'm flying above the audience mm-hmm. and I'm looking down and I'm counting how many there are and I'm counting where they're clustering and I'm counting. It's quantitative by and large. Voice of the customer, on the other hand, especially when it's gathered through ethnographic studies or focus groups or even surveys becomes far more qualitative. And it is as much about how people feel and how they engage with you in physical space or digital space um, through body language and through, uh, you know, emojis and other Mm. aspects that don't really show up in a quantitative assessment of how many households are there in this zip code or census? Right. Yeah. How many households that have a uh, investable, um, uh, inc- investable assets of at least a quarter of a million dollars and an annual income of a quarter of a million dollars and 
two children and have owned their house for at least five years. So market insight to me is very much about the quantitative aspects of the number of potential customers, the number of current customers, the market share that my brand has relative to other brands competing for the same decisions, Mm -hmm. um, metrics like aided and unaided awareness or consideration set consideration rates. It might also be looking at a market in terms of quantitative metrics like net promoter scores. Um, voice of customer, very different. So now, you know, as I was saying earlier, I, I, I work with a, a branding and design um, agency in New York called Auto Brand Lab that is very much about looking at the, the, the audience that, audiences that we address holistically. We use a combination of quantitative and qualitative methods of analysis of third-party data like the, the Claritas data set that mm-hmm. allows me to do what what is called a total segment market analysis, where I can identify an audience in a zip code that are members of two or three or, or more cycle segments. And then I can query the data set for the households in the census tracts in that area to say, tell me about how many of them own a home versus rent? How many of them right. have children over the age of 16 versus mm-hmm. children, younger children? Tell me how many have IRA accounts? How many? And I can start to build logical uh, cases for why households with a certain set of characteristics that are largely quantitative market insights would be in market for a product or a service that I believe will satisfy a need that I believe they have or are likely to have based mm-hmm. on those characteristics. That, however, isn't voice of customer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> voice of customer literally requires either putting yourself in their shoes. And we often do that through ethnographic studies where Again, with today's technology, I don't have to be physically with them, but I can get their permission to have them use an application on their smartphone and take me shopping with them mm-hmm. or to let me spend time with their family and understand what a day in the life is like and what their ways of describing or reacting to certain stimuli are, are not just likely to be. Uh, it may also be quantitative or what I call quantitative research, where, and I'll, uh, I'll give an example. We did this recently with a credit union client that has a quarter of a million members. And they identified uh, a dozen cycle segments that were not only their best customers currently, but also had the best propensity or, or likelihood of being customers or members that would contribute to the sustainability and future of, of the credit union. Okay. So we, we said, well, we know that there are 300,000 potential new members in the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens mm. that meet these criteria. But Brooklyn and Queens are very different from Nassau and Suffolk counties compositionally, demographically, um, you know, we're talking about different age groups, different ethnicities, mm-hmm. um, different political orientations, vastly different. So can we use the same language, the same imagery in our outreach to engage them? 
how would we find out? That doesn't really reveal itself in the data that you have access to through market insights in, in, in a platform, whether it's Claritas or any other. So, but we can now acquire an audience. We can say out of the 300,000, let's pick 50,000. Mm -hmm. And rather than making an offer to them, let's invite them to participate in an ethnographic study. Oh, okay. And okay. we may now wind up having a hundred people out of that 50,000 that we'll pay an incentive to and mm -hmm. we'll be able to do a, a, a one or two or three day ethnographic study with them to literally understand how they go about their lives in making yeah. decisions. Um, another would be to say with a larger audience, that same 50,000, having learned something first person, voice of customer, actual, you know, language they use and, and experiences that they shared with us. Now let's pick an audience of, let's say a thousand out of the 50,000. And instead of doing an ethnographic study, let's field a qualitative survey. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting uh, in, in that we're able to now take advantage of platforms that can take natural language, ingest it into a large language model. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is how it works. We can ask a question about when you think of credit unions, what brands come to mind? Mm -hmm. And we get an open end. Now, typically, as a market analyst, I would wind up with a thousand responses and right. it would be up to me to determine whether they were similar or dissimilar and how they should be grouped. So there's a potential for me as the researcher introducing bias. But now, as soon as they enter it, the natural language processing capability picks it up in real time, runs mm -hmm. it through a large language model and says, hmm, there were five other things that seem similar. Mm -hmm. So as quickly as you sit, hit submit, it now comes back and says, Monique, um, you said brand X. Does another person said this, do they mean the same thing? Uh, and yes or no, simple question. Right, right. And, and what that does is it disambiguates the answers. Yeah. But the second thing it says is if you have one more minute, some other people said this about the brand. Mm -hmm. Do you agree or disagree? Simple answer. It's, you know, it could be a five point scale or, or, or a three point scale or a seven point scale, but it will, it will do that one or two or three times as much as you have tolerance for. What that does is it takes all of that bias of the researcher out of it because it's doing that same thing to a hundred people in real time so that, in a, again, this is kind of geeky, but it's, it's <laughs> using a, a different kind of statistical analysis called Bayesian inference mm. to now have the group itself make sure that proposition A and proposition B are clearly two different things. And if they do mean the same thing, then it just becomes one proposition. And if there are things that are said about brand A by a statistically significant number of people in the group, it allows the group to determine whether they agree or disagree. Right. Wow. And it captures all those open ends on 
you know, why did you make the decision or what would keep you from making the decision? I don't have to predetermine the choices, but the platform does help the group Mm -hmm. through crowdsourcing and then with machine learning and natural language processing, translate voice of the customer into terms that are now also market insight. Right, right. (laughs) It's full circle. Yes. So that now tells us when we go in to create the campaign to actually reach 50,000 people, Mm -hmm. it helps us understand what to say, how to say it, who, how to differentiate not only the message and the image, but even the channel or the time of day or the day of week, when in an omni-channel campaign, we can conduct in-flight analysis of impressions, Mm -hmm. engagements, and conversions for each variation, for each sub-segment of our audience of 50,000, and optimize the campaign's performance in flight. I think you just gave our listeners a whole marketing plan out there. <laughs> oh, it, and and as, as, as exciting as that is to a marketer, to, to be able to finally solve Wanamaker's dilemma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know half of my marketing yes. works. I just don't know which half. <laughs> we can now be very clear about what aspects of our marketing efforts are in fact working. Right. And using the same kind of market insights thinking, when we field a campaign to 50,000 people, we're also kind of like a clinical trial, maintaining a control group that Mm -hmm. isn't exposed to the campaign. So after the campaign is complete, we wait 30 days Mm -hmm. and we ask the client to provide us with a list of the actual conversions that took place, not just the click-throughs, not just the people who filled out the form, but the people who actually opened an account, made a deposit, took out a loan. And we do a matchback analysis and we do a lift analysis, Mm -hmm. which allows us to see how effectively we addressed our target audience, how much of the conversion that occurred during that time period came from the audience that we identified and engaged versus others who came through other channels. Mm -hmm. And we're able to look at not only who made a deposit or who took out a loan, but who became a member. Maybe they didn't go so far as to take out a loan or open a, you know, a, a, a big account, but they did become a member. Yeah. And, and as a marketer, I always have to think about what, well, what was my business intent? Was it to get somebody to deposit $100 or was it to convince them that this brand should be trusted and become part of their life for life so that I now look at that member in terms of their lifetime value Mm -hmm. and not a simple transaction value. Right, right. And I can now begin to justify for some, is seen as a disproportionately high cost for precision marketing. But the way I like to put it to clients is, okay, so you've just been bitten by a snake. How much is the anti-venom worth to you? <laughs> it's, it's not expensive when you think of it in terms of lifetime value. Yes. So 
if you're looking at the cost of a spray and pray campaign without knowing what you actually converted as a function of that campaign, and you haven't calculated the lifetime value of that customer or member, you really can't say that it was a good value. It may have, in mm-hmm. fact, been very expensive. Right. I mean, it is expensive as saying to someone, well, you've, you've, you've now got a very exotic disease and we could give you tetracycline and, and, and it costs, you know, pennies a pill, but 50% chance it might work, 50% it won't. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, we could create a monoclonal antibody that's targeting that specific disease just for you. And yeah, it would cost $10,000, but we can tell you at a 99% confidence level, plus minus two, that it will cure what ails you. (laughs) I'd be trying to find that (laughs) 10,000. Exactly. So again, it's all a matter of how you frame it. Right. Um, And that's a long way of answering your question, but that's (laughs) the difference between market insight and voice of customer. And I think it's the difference between precision marketing and anything else. Right, right. (laughs) Okay, Don, this is going to be a long conversation. I can feel it, which is a great thing. But what I think we'll do is turn this into a two-part episode. We're at a pretty good place to break now. So listeners, if you're tuning in as this episode releases, check back next week for part two of our audience's activation and acquisition conversation. And if you're not listening as this releases, check out the description box for a direct link to part two. 